All right. So again, we're continuing uh, our lesson that we've been going through for the last couple of weeks about how we got the Bible. And uh, since there's no questions, we're going to have a little review. And uh, my first question. So who who were the Masoretes? Remember we talked about that last week. They did something particularly important for us. Yeah. So there were. So yeah. So there were family of scribes, but these Masoretes are like it's kind of was like the scribes in general, but more particular that there were uh, some Masoretes during like the the fifth century that um, are very crucial in maintaining and inscribing and, and, and uh, copies of the Hebrew manuscripts, right? So there was like two of them, and there was like the Ben Asher family, and then there was a, a, another group. And uh, I believe one of them, at least one of them was responsible for one of the codexes uh, that we use as the basis of one of our, uh, or as the basis of our Hebrew text today. All right. So, what were targums, and why are they important? Originally, they were oral. Uh, yeah. Writing or, or oral became writings. Correct. Yeah. So it was basically somebody. If somebody was reading from the text, there was somebody else there, kind of like a translator that was that was speaking uh, to uh, those listening. It was an oral paraphrase of the scripture, and later at some point, there were a few that were actually written down. And another reason why they're important is that they line up pretty close to our text today. So even though they were considered oral paraphrase, just explaining the scriptures, we do see that they are very, very close uh, to the actual text, again, that we have today. So approximately how many Dead Sea Scroll fragments have been found? Yeah, so in the thousands, a lot. Yeah, 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 she has the notes. Twenty-five, uh, Over 25,000 fragments, and I guess... Uh, depending on the information I got when when the, when that was written down, it may be more than that now today. All right, and then what is kind of already talked about this a little bit? What is the importance of comparing different Old Testament texts to our current text? So why do we? Why, why is it even important to mention Targums, for example, in, in comparison to our current text? Basically, as if we're talking about the same thing they were. Yeah. Basically trying to establish that continuity. So this is what it's been the whole time. Right. And so, remember, we talked about the Samaritan Pentateuch and... Like sometimes when like Mount Ebal is mentioned, they, they say Mount Gerizim. And we look at that, and of course, at least in my mind, I don't understand why they changed that to Mount Gerizim to kind of to kind of support their their views. But even that version is incredibly close to the Pentateuch we know today. 
And so looking at all these different types of text, uh, the Targums, so on, they basically lend credibility to our current, again, our current text because remember our, those codexes that are, we rely heavily on around the 9th to 10th century, all right? And so even a thousand years before, we can look at text and say, that's pretty, pretty close, all right? There's, you know, there was obviously a, a great uh, deal of care taken to maintain copies of that text throughout time. Any any other comments on this? Right? And so, I can't remember if we talked briefly about the Septuagint here. Um, but if you recall, the Septuagint, it comes from the word, well, the Septua, I believe, comes from the word 70. All right? And, I, and for whatever reason, uh, there was actually 72 scholars that would use to translate the Greek to the Hebrew, but for whatever reason, I guess it's just easier to say 70, uh, which lends us this name of Septuagint. And so uh, th- there was a translation of the Hebrew text. We do know that the law was translated probably around the 3rd century B.C., uh, but at some point, the rest of the Old Testament was, was translated, but it's really... Not, it's really unclear as to when uh, that actually took place. And what we do see is, in my eyes, it's kind of like the King or the New King James Version of, of our Bible, is that we do have more literal translations of our, of our Bible, maybe like the New American Standard, and then we have more paraphrase, so like the... Well, the worst one I think is a New Living Translation, but it's more of a par- more of a paraphrase than literal. Yes. So up to about the third century, they everything was oral. No, no, no. So there were there were there were there were copies of the law. All this is was a translation of the Hebrew text to the Greek. So there were there were copies. I mean, we see in the Old Testament where people, you know, Moses. They, they had, you know, they started writing, you know, probably around 1400 B.C., but there were copies uh, throughout time. So this is just for the actual Septuagint. Okay. All right. And so one thing that you'll notice is in, in our New Testaments where, say, for example, Paul is referencing some Old Testament text and if your Bible's like mine, he'll quote it. There's a note that references the, the Old Testament text. If you go to the Old Testament text, it may read just a little bit differently. And a lot of times the reason being is that he's actually quoting the Septuagint. Okay, and so that's why you'll see uh, some of those uh, differences. All right, and we also see where uh, in there, you know, there'll be like some differences in how verses are arranged. And so you might have the entire text, but this passage that's supposed to be over here, it may be over here. And it's, it's kind of interesting how there's, there's the, it's the text is there, but it may be arranged a little bit differently. But overall, again, it's fairly, fairly minor variations there. Okay, uh, Here are a, a few quotes. Uh, it says that Paul wrote as a man with the Septuagint in his blood, and, and uh, again, that's already already briefly mentioned that that he knew it. That is apparently, 
you know, when he was reading Old Testament texts, more than likely he was reading, uh, or at least, uh, at least he he was well acquainted with uh, the Septuagint. And then another one says, often does not mention how very much of the Septuagint supports the Hebrew text, yet even when the Septuagint differs and offers a better reading, it never replaces the Hebrew as the standard form of the text. Okay, so remember that it's good and it may even have a better reading, but when we look to, when we try to, uh, you know, at least for our translations today, our Old Testament text, we're not using the Septuagint, all right? We're using those other codexes, all right? But it does, again, lend itself uh, and, and to the uh, validity of our current Hebrew text, all right? And so, again, the Septuagint is just a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. All right? Any questions, comments on that? Okay. So, which leads us to our next point. So, if you remember, I had this this little chart here, and you can't really see what's happening here. But uh, this very first one, I had, it was basically at least my train of thought from talking about the legitimacy of the Bible, that it all begins where, um, with answering the question, did men write inspired scripture? And then we get into, was the scripture transmitted throughout time? Do we have all the scriptures? So on and so forth. I told you we probably wouldn't spend a lot of time talking about did men write inspired scriptures, but... Uh, when we're dealing with some of these texts that are called these apocryphal texts, we start getting into this question of inspiration, all right? And so we're briefly going to talk a little bit about that in uh, the apocryphal books, all right? And so when thinking about inspiration, at least um, from my train of thought and then I kind of listen to read about uh, other peoples that have uh, weighed in on uh, how to determine uh, text as being canon or inspired or not. And this is just a quick list of things that we can ask about a text to kind of help us determine uh, in our minds whether or not we can even view uh, such texts as inspired. And, of course, the first one I think is the most obvious is, is the book free from obvious errors or contradictions? Okay, so if it's, if you read something and it's just wild, just wildly off base, it contradicts very plainly other scriptures, we can make the conclusion, you know, this book there may be some usefulness to this book, but we, at least we can't consider it to be inspired scripture. Uh, another uh, point, was it written in the appropriate time period? So if you remember like the very first lesson, uh, we talked about like the Greek text and the uncials. So the uncials and the minuscule text, basically upper and lower case text that determine or help determine what time period something was written in, all right? And so we can use that, just the actual text, the language, the grammar uh, in the text as well to determine, you know, possibly, uh, approximately what time period it was written in. 
Also, one thing to consider is does the writer make claims of inspiration? We'll look at uh, one text in the Apocrypha, the Old Testament Apocrypha, where the writers basically say, we're just doing the best that we can. All right, They're not saying this is inspired or this is the word of the Lord. They're just saying, hey, we're just, we're just trying to do the best of our uh, we can in trying to write an accurate uh, history. All right? And also, was it considered inspired when written? All right? So when the Gospel of Matthew was written, all right, was there people that considered it to be inspired? Or at least we can get pretty close to when that text was written and get an idea of what the general consensus is around that book, all right? And I'm sure there are some other points that we could make uh, to try to determine the, the legitimacy of the Scripture. So, which leads us to the Apocrypha, okay? And so it comes from the Greek word meaning hidden. And so these Old Testament Apocrypha books, the reason that these had become an issue is that these 15 books were actually found in, or they're found in the Septuagint, all right? And there's also a, the kind of discussion uh, about when the Septuagint was being translated that uh, there is a thought that, that the reason we see these books in the Septuagint is not just because the people wanted the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, but it's possible that they wanted some important literary works translated as well. The right, of course, there's not a clear answer on that. But again, these books are found in the Septuagint. Uh, Twelve of the 15 are considered deuterocanonical by Catholics. So there's protocanonical and deuterocanonical. Deutero means like secondary. And so, so this is, if you look at a Catholic Bible... It's in a Catholic Bible, and they recognize, the reason it's called Deuterocanonical is that they recognize that, that there is controversy, uh, that there are, there are a lot of people that don't accept uh, these books, okay, but yet they consider them still to be canon, all right? And so these books, the best that we can tell, they're written between 300 B.C. and A.D. 100, and just looking at those dates in and of themselves, if you're, if you know your Bible history, you could see where this would be a problem, okay? Because this was written during the time of silence up to uh, the end of the first century, okay? And that's kind of small, but I was trying to just put in the whole list of these apocryphal books. Uh, one thing to notice that y'all probably in particular um, have seen is we have these additions to Esther. I know in my Bible, when you read the, get to the end of the Esther, they'll make a note and says, well, such and such has these many extra chapters uh, to Esther. Well, this is what this, what that is, all right? Uh, has anybody read any of these books? Maybe a few, okay. Passage here and there. But Passage here and there. Uh, so you have like the first, second Maccabees as well. There's some interesting stuff there. Bell and the Dragon is is interesting. I've actually read that. It had to do with 
uh, a story of basically Daniel, you know, during the time of exile, basically proving that Baal and the dragon were false idols. All right, just an, it's an interesting story, and, and I think a lot of these uh, have things that uh, may be useful. All right, but you know, again, if they're not inspired, we have to view them as such. So, Josephus, and, and there's other people as well. Uh, he states that 22 books are considered divine, and remember, those 22 books are the same as our 39 today. All right, so he considers that there's only 22 Old Testament books uh, that are divine, that they're canon. Also interesting enough is that there's no evidence that those books were ever accepted by any Jewish community. Right? We also know that, so Paul may quote from the Septuagint, we never see anybody in the New Testament ever quoting any of those books that we just looked at. All right. And then there's a here's this quote from the Canon of the Old Testament by Edward J. Young, and he says why the apocryphal books, however, went with the apocryphal books, however, the case was different. There are no marks in these books which would attest a divine origin. As Green pointed out, both Judith and Tobith contain historical, chronological, and geographical errors. These books justify falsehood and deception and make salvation to depend upon works of merit. Almsgiving, for example, is said to deliver from death. Judith lives a life of falsehood and deception in which she is represented as assisted by God. Ecclesiasticus and the wisdom of Solomon inculcate a morality based upon expediency. Wisdom teaches the creation of the world out of pre-existent matter. Ecclesiasticus teaches that the giving of alms makes atonement of sin. In Baruch, it is said that God hears the prayers of the dead. And in 1 Maccabees, there are historical and geographical errors. This is not to deny many fine and commendable things in the Apocrypha, but the books nonetheless show themselves at points to be at variance with divinely revealed truth. They were consequently never adopted by the Jews as canonical. And so this is just a, a short list of some of the errors if you read some of those errors, you could probably see why the Catholics are probably okay with some of this because some of this is, um, you know, right along with some of the Catholic teachings. Um, in the Maccabees, it doesn't say here, but there's a quote that talks about people praying for the dead. All right, and so that is used to justify, you know, the Catholics' view on praying for the dead, that type of stuff. All right, and so you see a lot of, of you know, basically very simple uh, errors as far as geography, history, uh, and then you also see teachings that are completely contradictory uh, to the Old Testament uh, text. All right, you know, again, we see Judith lives a life a life of falsehood and deception. You know, it's seen, and she is seen as assisted by God. And then we have this morality based upon expediency. Uh, you know, so we see all those issues regarding uh, those texts. Right? So there also are some New Testament apocryphal, or they're called pseudo-pyographical books. I, I don't... I, I, it took me five minutes to, to, to type that word out, because I, I couldn't... <laughs> 
I had to. I was looking. I was looking at the book to try to figure out how to write it, and then come back, and then go back and forth various times just to, uh, just to write it down. And there's a. It's interesting as to if you kind of Google it. There's like these big lists, and then you go someplace else, and they may have a different list of these of these different texts. And um, I didn't care to to put the whole list on on a slide. But um, you know, none appear in the Bible. Uh, there, are, so there's like there's a, a Epistle of Barnabas, there's a Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, there's a Gospel of Peter, um, and and there's some, of course there's a lot of other uh, books as well. Yeah, so the the Clement, so he was around what ninety A.D. something around there. Many of them contain absurd and contradictory uh, writings. Um, the Gospel of Peter, just go read it sometimes. You basically have uh, a big giant Jesus coming out of the tomb. His head like reaches up into the skies with the cross kind of coming out behind him. It's it's interesting. Uh, I can't remember if it's the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip. Uh, frankly, I can't remember which one it was, but it would make a good movie. I mean, there was some wild stuff going on in that one. Um and then the Epistle of Barnabas. The Epistle of Barnabas is actually pretty interesting. It's, I mean, it's 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 writing is fairly similar to Hebrews. There's comparisons made between the old and and, and the new covenant. But in the Epistle of Barnabas, there's a very explicit statement made that the the world is going to end in six thousand years. All right, so clearly uh, that's a problem. Okay, and so that just kind of gives you a, a hint of some of the things that you might read. Uh, in those books, all right. But any any questions on this? Where's the book of <laughs> we're going. We're we're probably going to talk about that book a little bit uh, uh, later on. Actually, in reference to Jude, uh, I can't remember. I looked at that, and so it's not in the Old Testament apocrypha, and I can't recall <laughs> exactly when it is said to be written. But I, I want to say maybe around. 200, 100 BC, maybe, but don't don't quote me on that. It was obviously not written by Enoch himself, okay? And uh, <laughs> because Enoch lived long, he he would have been old if he had to write that. Not that Enoch, uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, we'll get into that because there's this whole question about Jude and it quoting Enoch, and that quote is very similar to. Uh, a verse that you actually see in the book of Enoch, okay? And so we'll we'll talk about that later on, but it's not in the, the, the what is considered apocryphal, at least by the Catholic standard, but I think it would fall in into the the Old Testament uh, type books, right? It's one of those, I guess people would call it like the lost books or whatever, but it just doesn't fit into one particular category, Right? Yes, so uh, so it's these 15 books, and then 12 of those, from what I understand, 12 of those 15 are considered canon by the Catholics. Okay? Right, so we'll get into the New Testament canon. And so we're going to, so like what we did with the Old Testament is that we looked at some uh, some old 
uh, Hebrew text and some old translations that lend itself uh, to the Hebrew text. We're going to do the same thing with the New Testament, all right? And so, if you recall, we have these three manuscripts of the Vatican Synodic Alexandrian manuscripts, and they are very, very important. Uh, the Vatican is not synodic, it, you know, again, is incredibly important, at least in regards to the text that we have uh, today. But we do, again, uh, have text outside of that that lend legitimacy to our current manuscripts and lend legitimacy to the New Testament itself, and that it was circulating very early. There's this text is called the Diatessaron, okay? And so, one thing that I want to point out here is we don't have an original text. We don't have an original source. But from secondary sources, it is said that it was written around 170 by Tatian, which was a pupil of Justin Martyr. Y'all may have heard the name Justin Martyr. And this was, it was... The Gospels, but they're kind of written in a harmonious way, all right? So I consider it kind of like a harmony of the Gospels, all right? So the important thing of of noting when it was possibly written is that, so in the early 20th century, there was a lot of dispute, uh, particularly around, uh, particularly with German scholars, that the New Testament text could have been written no earlier than 140 A.D., all right? So it was either 140 or later, which, of course, for the Christian presents a huge issue, all right? So this would have been, what, I don't, whenever John died, so 70, just say 70 years after John died, was that they were claiming uh, when, at the earliest, the New Testament was written, but if we see this written around 170, we can pretty easily conclude that those texts had been being circulated much earlier than 170, more than likely much earlier than 140, and it kind of blows that whole theory out of the water. Now, even though we don't have these original sources, we do see... Uh, fragments of a Greek diatessaron being found, okay? And so this was found in a Roman fortress captured by the Persians in 256, okay? The reason that's important is because this Greek diatessaron had to have been in that fortress, assumably, before 256, okay? No, that's A.D., A.D., yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is... Yeah, so this is 170 A.D., this is 256 A.D., all right? And so you see that, and it's it's very, very possible that the, the story behind Tatian and about when he wrote it was, you know, there's, if the dates were wrong, they're not wrong, uh, you know, they're not incredibly wrong, all right? They would have, I would assume that they would be pretty close uh, to that 170 date, all right? But... Regardless of that, is it is a very, very early source of at least the Gospels, all right? So, again, it's just the Gospels. It's not the entire New Testament. But we do see those texts circulating very early. 
and circulating in a fairly organized way. We also have old Syriac texts. Uh, we have one is the Curitonian Syriac, which is another copy of the Gospels. It's dated around the 5th century. Uh, we have the Sinaitic Syriac. Okay, and so this was actually found at St. Catherine's Monastery at Sinai. I don't know what it is. It's something about the monks and the monasteries. If you want to find an old text, you go visit the monastery because you'll just see it's very interesting that a lot of this information uh, comes from uh, these monasteries that have been around for a long time. So it's dated to around the 4th or the 5th century. Again, it's just a copy of the Gospels. Interesting enough, and this would be another thing that we'll probably briefly cover along with the book of Enoch and Jude, is that the Synaptic Syriac does not contain Mark 16, 9-20, so the latter part of Mark 16, but we do see where the Curitonium does, right? So both of those, 4th to 5th century. And then we have the Peshitta, all right? So this was, I mentioned this in our Old Testament text, okay, that we have some old, an Old Testament, Peshitta, I guess. I don't know how to say that. But uh, it's also, we see also see copies of the New Testament. It is a revision of old Syriac text, all right? And one thing to note is there's, we just have a bunch of copies of that. So around 350 uh, manuscripts uh, that are around that we know of that is a, you know, harkens back uh, to that old uh, Syriac text. Uh, yeah, I, I would assume. Uh, so, interesting. <laughs> it depends on who you ask. So, I guess you would say in, in its infancy, it would have been at that... Um, now I've gone blank. It would have been about the 4th century. Would have been kind of where it kind of became more organized. So between the three and four hundreds A.D. And of course, the Catholics will say that they were they were there the whole the, the very beginning. All right, uh, but we do see where you know really when it became organized was around that three to, three to probably more likely the fourth centuries that it became organized, and it it became more like what we see today. Does that does that help? Right, which which kind of ties back to, if you remember, I'm gonna go back here. This Vatican manuscript. I mean, you know what the Vatican is, all right. And so there was a copy that that was in the Vatican that basically the Catholics had hid for a long. It wasn't until like the 1800s or 1900s where somebody could actually go in and read this. Uh, to to its full extent, it was very very guarded. If you were lucky enough to get in and just look at this, um, you you had very limited time. There you weren't going to be able to study this, right? Yeah, well, well yeah, 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 right. They're always fighting those Italians. Yeah. Who's going to be the pope and who's going to have all the power? 
Well, and of course, if they, well, I'm not going to say no. I'm going to end that discussion at that, but, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure when it started. What what I'm saying is is that it's it when it it was housed at the Vatican. All right. So it's dated to around the fourth century. I don't know when the Vatican was built or whatever, but it was housed for a long, long time. And and, I, and I'm not sure if it still is or not, but it was housed at the Vatican pretty much under lock and key for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. You just Google it and, and find. So, all right. So we have some Coptic versions, and a Coptic uh, is basically a development of the Egyptian language. All right. So we'll look at two Coptic versions, and the differences is is so we have the Sahidic version, which is a dialect of Upper Egypt. This other version that we'll look at here on the next point is just a dialect of Lower Egypt, all right? So there was differences in the languages slightly between Upper and Lower Egypt. Uh, this this uh, manuscript uh, dates back to around the 3rd and 4th centuries. And then this Boharic version, which is, again, that Lower Egypt dialect, is dated to around the 4th to 5th century, Okay. Interesting enough, there there just seems to be there was a lot of you know just a lot of action in the Egyptian area in you know around uh, this time. Remember, uh, this is the Septuagint where it was being translated at in Egypt. All right, it just seemed to be a hotbed of activity, at least for um, you know New Testament and Old Testament texts. Consider Alexander's library, which he built in. Alexandria, and yeah. they, they had much old stuff. Yeah, and it was, it's not there no more. It was, yeah. All right. And so again, the just like those other Old Testament texts help, help confirm what we call the Masoretic text, these Coptic versions do help confirm that text of the Vatican and the Synaptic manuscript. If you remember, we just looked at it, that they date, around similar time periods. Okay? So, what takes us to these old Latin versions, if you remember, uh, we talked about the Vulgate, which was a Latin translation of the Old Testament. Okay? And so, this will be brought up uh, again here shortly. And so, we don't actually have... Latin translations from you know between the first and fourth century, but we can kind of piece together that there had to have been some translations floating around somewhere, okay? Because at some point, this Bishop Damascus of Rome asked Jerome to revise the old Latin version, okay? So there was some old Latin version floating around at least between the 1st and the 4th centuries, all right? So, which takes us to this Latin Vulgate, okay? And so, it's sought to confirm uh, these uh, Latin manuscripts to 
the original Greek, so pretty much, you know, again, a translation of the Greek to Latin. And we see where Jerome uh, finished revising the four Gospels in, in 384, right? So that's 384 A.D. But at some point, the rest of the text was finished, but we don't know by who. We don't know if Jerome finished it or some other uh, individual, all right? And so, you know, again, hearkening back, so the, the, the bishop asked Jerome to revise the old Latin version, which led to the Vulgate, okay? So there was some Latin translation floating around again, and then this is a kind of a more organized, uh, official, I guess is the right word to say, uh, a translation of the Greek uh, text uh, that they had. And again, the text is similar to the Vatican and the Synaptic manuscripts. Okay. We see where he later translated the Old Testament. We've already talked about that. So, which takes us to the English translations of the Bible. And so, as you can kind of see, we're creeping up on, uh, you know, uh, later and later dates. Started back very early, around 170. The Vulgate's around 384. And then we start talking about these English translations of the Bible. And one thing that we see, we don't have a lot of time. One thing that we see is that this is one of those things where we don't have like a, a lot of information on. Uh, but there's, it's said that there were parts of the Bible uh, that were translated to English in the 7th and 8th centuries. All right, so this wouldn't have been like entire, you know, again, entire Bibles, entire New Testaments. Uh, but we do see where there's these old English versions of the Pentateuch, the Psalms, the Gospels. And these have been found, all right? But again, we don't have an entire Bible in that old English, all right? So just bits and pieces, the first complete translation, at least that we know of, is by John Wycliffe in, in 1382. Okay, so y'all probably know that name, Wycliffe, all right? And so, as you would expect, it was very important. And you start remembering your history a little bit. We're getting to 1382. We're getting close to the invention of the printing press. And we see where Erasmus actually printed the first Greek New Testament in 1516, okay? So the first Greek New Testament, okay? And so I can't remember exactly with Wycliffe, uh, but I, th- I think the Wycliffe was a translation of the Latin to English, all right? Somebody uh, tell me if I'm wrong. But with Wh- William Tyndall here, he sought to translate the actual Greek, okay, into English, all right? And so this would have been, instead of having a translation of a translation like Wycliffe's version, this was a translation of the original text, all right? And so it was completed around 1526. Uh, we do see where there were two editions, two updates in 1534 to 35. And if you know anything about William Tyndall, is that there was an uproar when he uh, did this, all right? Uh, his translation was condemned, you know, copies of it was burned, and 
he eventually, I mean, after this, he was he was on the run, okay, and he ended up dying because of what he did here, right? So we ran out of time, and uh, we'll start back there uh, next week.